Every church needs leaders, pastors, priests, or reverends who will teach their congregation gospel truths, organize service events, and mentor people one-on-one who want to grow closer to God. These leaders are often seen as the holiest, godliest people of their churches, role models of the faith. But that perception doesn't always hold. Today is a former pastor was sentenced to up to 14 years in prison. And the man arrested for shooting an off-duty deputy Monday night in Harbor City is a local pastor. Family says Hobart used his title as pastor to manipulate the victim. Too often, spiritual leaders we look up to end up making horrific decisions that destroys their reputation. Even worse, their efforts to cover up the scandal invalidate any sense of trust they would have had otherwise. The effects of their sin are felt throughout the congregation. Any spiritual growth they helped you achieve is suddenly put into question. If their moral authority turns out to be a lie, what does that mean for the growth you obtained under their leadership? Does that mean your spirituality is also a lie? As uncomfortable as this question is, the Bible only serves to amplify it. Many of the stories about our Sunday school role models reveal problematic, if not evil, life choices. And none of them are as baffling as God's anointed himself, King David. He's famous for conquering daunting giants and leading an entire nation in worship. The Bible even says that David is a man after God's own heart. And yet, the story of his downfall is so vicious, so vile, it seems to invalidate any notion of moral authority he ever had. How do we reconcile a spiritual leader when his actions are so sinful? How could he be after God's own heart after what he did? David's downfall is recounted in 2 Samuel chapter 11. After many successful conquests on the front lines of war, David decides not to go to the battlefield, instead lounging in his royal home. One night, he sees a woman bathing from his roof and orders that she be brought to him. He doesn't care that she's married to a soldier who's fighting in battles David should be leading. No, David just wants to take her for himself. Eventually, David finds out that the woman, Bathsheba, is pregnant. Soon everyone will know that David committed adultery and his reputation as God's faithful leader will be tarnished. So he tries to cover it up. He orders Bathsheba's husband back from the war and tells him to spend the night with his wife. The soldier, Uriah, refuses to go home while his battle brothers are still at war. Even after David forces him to get drunk, Uriah still refuses to enter his home and see his wife. Eventually, David does the unthinkable to save his own reputation, and commands by letter that Uriah be left to die on the battlefield alone. David made sure Uriah didn't tell anyone about his secret by taking his life. The chapters that follow make it clear that David's life was full of consequences for these terrible decisions. But those aren't the stories we regularly talk about today. When we think of David, we shove this problematic portrait aside in favor of the godly harp player, the boy who fought Goliath, and the king faithful to his God. We don't want our Bible story hero to look like our real-world villains. But the unavoidable truth is that David is far from the exception in our faith communities. But when a church leader has a lap in moral judgment, we can't ignore it like we can with our biblical role models. Instead, they become a poison that sullies everything they've touched. People walk away from the faith because of scandals of those they once looked up to for guidance. Yet the Bible goes out of its way to spotlight those very kinds of religious leaders. What does it want us to do with morally compromised leaders like David? How could we move forward in our faith after someone like that breaks our trust? And is there anything we can do in our church communities to prevent these situations from ever happening?
to start answering these questions, I knew I needed to talk to someone who could help me understand both the spiritual and social principles that led to David's downfall. And thankfully, I knew just the person who could help. So I've, I've narrowed it down just to say that I grow people. This is Dr. Darius Benton. He's an assistant professor of communication studies at the University of Houston. The focus of his studies is on organizational communication, exploring how organizational culture works, especially with how it relates to race, gender, and religion. He's also an ordained minister, serving as either youth pastor, head pastor, or in other supportive roles for the past 20 years. Biggest attribute that I offer is to help people see themselves and how they fit in the world and um, help them to bloom and blossom. Mm. And so whether that be um, a student who does not have any particular faith, if it's a pastor that's been you know, preaching and teaching for 50 years, if it's a random person on the street, you know, I want them to know that they're seen and that they have a place to offer something into the world. Benton fell in love with student teaching during college and eventually gained a job as a graduation coach at a high school. Which was basically the hybrid between a counselor and a social worker, but I just called it a youth ministry position in the school system. Those were some students that had some major challenges, um, but just walking through those challenges with them helped me to really see that there was a lot out there that needed to be done. This experience gave him the inspiration he needed to return to school himself and earn his doctorate. But I really learned in that process that there was a lot of voices that had not been heard in literature. There was a lot of perspectives that weren't taken, particularly when it comes to biblical literature. And so I think that in the same approach, I began as I began to be a researcher and a scholar, I want to hear from those people in the crowd. We hear from the disciples, but what about those people that were bystanders? What about the people who were standing on the side and you know yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna? What is their experience? Why were they there? What made them pick up those palms that day? And so I think that you know throughout my experience and part of what I do in my study is to seek those people out who are in the crowd and understand what is their experience? What is their story? How can we serve them? Making sure it's like my mentor, Dr. Ann Wimberly always says, is to make sure that we connect the findings of our research to those communities who um, need it most. Around the time that Dr. Benton was finishing his program, news was coming out about several notable church leaders and their massive moral failures. One of these congregations was the one Dr. Benton was a part of. The sin of one of his spiritual leaders was broadcast to the whole world, and the spiritual life of his peers was what was impacted most. He saw how devastating situations like these could be for the entire congregation firsthand. He knew he needed to use his studies to help the people that were hurting in his community. You know, I think part of it was me trying to process all of that, but then also wondering and and asking those questions, sitting in that tension of what does it mean for a person to be a leader, um, be a, a religious leader, to um, sacrifice so much of their lives, to make such a great impact for people, to change neighborhoods, to change cities, to change states, to change individual lives. And in their moment of humanity, you know, all of a sudden that doesn't mean anything anymore. As he searched for answers, he discovered that no one in social sciences had even asked his same questions. So he began studying how these organizational principles applied to discredited religious leaders. His main case study, King David, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And I was glad that my university offered us the opportunity to, you know, search this text and connect it with um, some theories and ideas that were already existing. And so I really hope that at some point others will, you know, take this as a starting point to do their own investigations and conversations about, you know, what does it look like when Um, religious leaders, political leaders, or other, you know, um, public-facing officials have this moment of humanity, um, and does that disqualify them for leadership? So I sat down to continue this conversation with him. With how personal this topic is, we didn't want to get lost in the technical side of the discussion first. Instead, we started with that lived experience of Dr. Benton and so many more who are just trying to navigate the pain and all the questions that it brings. A lot of people 
want to ask the question of how do we confront the realities of like unethical religious leaders in our communities? And when you take that to the Bible, um, I think that gets really, really difficult. Yeah. Um, because you know, the, the patriarchs that we are following throughout the Bible, um, are so often used as moral guides of what you should and shouldn't do, especially with David. It's really, really difficult to kind of have that, that mental switch of taking life lessons from him versus facing this. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, every leader like that or every figure that you spoke of has some type of flaw, you know, and I think that we like to um, overlook it. But I definitely believe that it was included in the biblical text for a reason. And it was to show us that we, too, are flawed individuals, but God still uses us. God still chooses us. And, you know, that does not disqualify us from the opportunity to serve. Um, I know personally that there, there's been many moments that I have tried to disqualify myself and say, well, you know, I think this way, so I'm not, I can't do this. Or, you know, I um, believe this, so I can't, you know, I, no way I, God will want me to stand up and say anything to anybody. Or, or I can't, you know, it's parts of this text that I, I'm not really comfortable with. So, you know, I'm just not going to preach that. No. God still wants from us what God wants from us. You know, God still causes us. God, the thing, and I, and I had a conversation with one of my um, family members um, probably a month ago about how God uses who God wants to use. And we don't get to choose that. Um, and so sometimes our um, social conditioning would have us to think and expect that certain people aren't worthy of God's choosing. But are any of us really worthy of God's choosing? And I think that's where grace comes in. And that's what makes it so sweet is that even if we're not a pastor, even if we don't lead a mega church, even if we're not a preacher, I can be um, a child in my third grade classroom and God can use me. And so those are the sweet things that we have to remember is that, you know, we, we don't the humans don't get to choose for God. You know, um, but God has chosen all of us to do something in some way. Um, And I think that that's the beauty in those stories is just to see that, you know, even as David got into this point of where, um, you know, he he had a moment of humanity and he used what was at his hand and what he had access to to get what he wanted, even if it was not a good decision for the organization that he served for the kingdom. He did what he wanted. He got what he wanted. But there was a string of consequences that he had to cover up (laughs) in order to preserve his image because he had grown to a place where everybody looked at him as being almost perfect. And once you get to that place, I think another leadership thing that people experienced is that fear of what happens when people realize I'm not perfect, particularly religious leaders, because we have this we have um, fallen into this perception. um, And sometimes we say that the people do it to us. But we buy into it as well, as where we have to be perfect. Um, I remember some years ago, I had a mentee who came to me and um, he was upset with me about some things. And what he said to me was, I didn't need you to be perfect. I needed you to be honest. Mm. And that really struck a chord with me because I realized that for years I was trying to be perfect for him. And he was struggling with his humanity and he needed me to present my humanity to know that I'm going to be okay. Mm. I can still function. (laughs) I can still be um, successful Mm. because if he has flaws, then I know I can carry my flaws and still be successful also. Mm. But I don't think in religious spaces we've allowed that Um, even amongst our even in in our own selves, um, you know, and I think that even and this may be a tangent, but, you know, we've seen the suicide rates of religious leaders and Christian pastors increase over the last decade. And a lot of that, I believe, might point to, and I don't have any data to support it, but a lot of that may point to the idea of me not being as perfect as the picture I've created. Mm. And how do I deal with that internally? And I don't have anybody to share my humanity and my realness with. 
And so it's like an internal collapse, I would imagine. Yeah. Can't even stand to present themselves. And I was like, if anybody ever finds out who I really am, then I'm going to be done. <laughs> and so they just, you know, choose to be done on their own, which is a horrible place to be to, to get to. But it's a very real place for a lot of people. And so I think that these kind of conversations of recognizing um, that people get to this moment and it and I think it also points to knowing the difference between um, and as you were talking about unethical leadership earlier, are is someone an unethical leader or did they just have a bad moment of leadership? Mm. Um, are they is it in their character to be a dark side leader or did they just make a bad choice? You know, and I think that those are moments that we have to look at, because I think that sometimes, you know, when leaders make the have these moral failings that people assign that as a character assault and say, oh, they're horrible. But it may not be who they are, but they just might have made a mistake. And so just like, you know, um, Jesus offers us forgiveness. Are we going to forgive those leaders? Are are those leaders going to forgive themselves? And are we going to allow them to have another opportunity? Yeah. Let me just take a moment to kind of like compartmentalize what what you've been saying. Basically, it it really seems like, especially in Christian circles, we're in a critical point where we need some way forward to a better approach to leadership. Um, We have people that are being led, that are being hurt, that are being mistreated, misused, um, abused even. And because of this reputation of leaders have to be perfect, it's stifling any kind of growth forward. Um, And religious leaders are assumed to be perfect already. There's no room for any growth. And any idea of, hey, we can be leading better can even be seen as uh, an attack, especially when it comes to more serious issues of character. Um, then it's also very important for leaders, for, for themselves to have that opportunity to recognize when they are failing, when they need help, and to be able to have that room to admit, hey, I'm not perfect, but rather I, I need help myself to make sure that I'm leading well, that I'm honoring well. Like it comes down to the question of not only do we, how do we confront immoral religious leaders, um, but how can we help move forward from that? How can we possibly forgive that? And what can we do to actually prevent those things? Absolutely. Yeah, I think I'll, you, you definitely capsuled it very well. Um, as you were talking, one thing that popped in my mind was I can't remember who said it um, when I was studying for my dissertation, but um, it was one of the one of the authors I quoted. I can't remember who it is off the top of my head. Please forgive me. Um, but they essentially um, brought to the forefront the idea that David was likely bored at the moment that this happened um, and talked about how some leaders grow, grow to a point where they are bored with their success. Um, you know, David had been, you know, um, conquering different nations. He had been successful at battle after battle, war after war. Um, and he should have actually been at war during this time period, but he didn't go. He sent the armies out. And, um, you know, it talked about how some leaders arrive at a point in their careers where they've been so successful that they're bored with their success and how at that moment they want to seek out something new. Like, what can I do next? What can I conquer next? Um, And so that's a pivotal moment that I think a lot of leaders, particularly the religious leaders, um, need to recognize because, um, you know, I think a lot of particular Christian pastors um, in some traditions feel like they have to be in that same role forever. You know, (laughs) like I'm going to pastor this one church for 40 years and that's all I'm going to do. Right. And essentially. They may arrive at a point, and I'm not saying this is for everybody, but some may arrive at a point where they're bored with their jobs. <laughs> they're bored with seeing the same people every week. They've been, they've been burying and baptizing people for the last 20, 30 years. They've been preaching every Sunday, doing Bible study every Wednesday. 
And they've been in this cycle over and over and over again to a point that they just get bored. And what does boredom do? It causes us to want to seek out something exciting, something new. You know, when they were first year, second year, third year pastor, it was new. They wanted to innovate. They want to try new things. Let me change this. Let me build this. Let me, you know, but how many sanctuaries can you build? You know, how many, (laughs) how many new programs can you start? And so, um, you know, I think that there that's a space where we have to recognize for some that we need, may need to create opportunities for them to be inspired again. Um, because this in this particular moment in David's life, he felt inspired, but he felt inspired when he saw a woman from his roof. Now, mind you, he was already married. He had concubines, everything else. He was not on the shortage of women, <laughs> but it was something about this one that he saw that he felt like I want to have it. It belongs to me. I want it. But it didn't really belong to him, but it kind of did because he was the king. And so, you know, th- those were the, some of those moments when leaders, you know, start to, as my grandmother would say, smell themselves. And you know, David began to smell himself and, you know, caused him to um, enact this chain of events that would, um, you know, bring him to this moment of where he had to hide and cover and you know, um, not necessarily uphold the image that people had grown to know him by. I think it's really interesting that idea of the the root cause that started all of this is the fact that David got bored mm-hmm. and that he wanted to feel like he had conquered something. He had taken his identity almost not in, um, you know, the the heart that he shared with God, but the desire that he chose instead through that heart with God, he was a conqueror. He did these great things. And it's almost like, um, well, it's almost like Abraham, you know, another patriarch that we we elevate as like this moral person when really, you know, there's story after story of him failing. And that failure comes from him giving up that promise of God, or, or rather that, that relationship with God and giving that up instead for the promise that God had made him. He fell in love with the idea of um, having a son and having, you know, ancestry after ancestry. And most all of his big failures comes from that decision of, I'm going to prioritize that instead. You know, I'm bored with what I am now, what I have now, what God has given me now. And instead, let me look to the, the thing the, the tool that God has used to give me blessing. And I, it's just really interesting how in a lot of these quote unquote role models in the Bible, um, that that's the central theme is, yeah, they, they aren't special. They aren't fantastic people. <laughs> and that's kind of the point. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're, it's almost as if they were never meant to be role models to begin with. They were supposed to be the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a perspective that you see or, or, I mean, I think you make, I think you make a great point. I mean, and I think that that once again, humanizes us and helps us to be even more grateful for, um, the divine pointing us out Mm. or giving us, making space for us in this, in this, what we call earth. Um, you know, God made space for us. And not just space, but place, you know, um, and recognizing that, you know, we all are flawed. um, But in that, there's still an assignment for us. You know, David's assignment was to be a psalmist, a king, a priest. Um, And in that, David did a lot of great things, you know, and I, I, I would not suggest that in this moment, even of David's mistake, as we might call it, mistake. if we see it that way, because some might not even see it as a mistake. They may just see it as a point in his journey. Mm-hmm. But um, even in this moment, you know, David was still everything that God said about David. <laughs> you know, um, David was still a man after God's heart, because even after this moment, he still went back to God. He still repented. He still, you know, it wasn't necessarily in this chapter that I studied, but, you know, the next chapter over, he's, you know, repentant. You know, he's grieving. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because not only did he, you know, destroy somebody's family, he lost a child and he, um, messed up his connection with God. 
you know. And so those are things that um, you really have to look at and say, okay, what is this here? Um, How does this apply to others? And uh, one of the things I tell people a lot and people don't always like it, but, you know, the same grace that we expect and require from God, we should offer to others, you know, and recognize that you're not perfect, just like I'm not. And I think the, the earlier that we recognize that, the sooner we can offer compassion to others um, and we can employ the things that, you know, was taught by Jesus. I can be compassionate to you when I know that this could very well be my circumstance. Actually, it might have been my circumstance, um, you know. And so if you have a moral failing, I can walk with you through that because I understand what that's like, you know. And so my heart is, is pointed a little bit different. But um, we don't always allow that grace for our religious leaders because we expect them to be perfect or godlike to a point of where they don't have any issues or moral failings. Um, we don't make space for what does it look like when our pastor needs to take a sabbatical because their mental health is not in the proper place or they are experiencing a human moment. Who can they go to and say, I need to step aside for a second and be a man or be a woman and deal with my own personal issues? Um, you know, do we create space for that or do we just expect them to still show up every week as a, as pieces of a person and just preach and teach and <laughs> baptize my baby and bury my grandma and, you know, do your job? Um, those are just some of those things that come out for me in this particular text um, and recognizing how sometimes leaders do put their own personal desires and wishes ahead of the organization. Um, But even before that, where does it come from? Um, I remember I had a conversation with an aunt of mine because a very um, dear friend of our family had been accused of, um, you know, in a very public way. He, He was a pastor or is a pastor, but he had been accused in a very public way of some sexual indiscretions. And, um, you know, my aunt blamed the church for it. And I was just like, well, auntie, how do you blame the church? And she said, well, had they let that man be who he was years ago and let him love who he wanted to love, this would never be happening. And that set out to me very like, wow, that's something we need to recognize because this person is who he's been his whole life that never changed. And he might have missed out on a lot of opportunities for love because of his desire to still maintain image in church and in his moments of humanness he made some decisions that did not necessarily elevate his position but a lot of his hiding came out of trying to maintain images and you know um, present as this perfect leader that the church expected him to be and you know her comment was you know had there been space for him to be this might not be an issue right now, <laughs> you know, and I and, and so those are some of those evolutionary moments that, you know, may be tough for churches to have conversations because they want to get into other theological debates and conversations. Um, but the thing that she pointed out about that particular scenario was in this particular pastor's case, um, you know, he had always been this great pastor. He had always been an amazing preacher. He had always shown up for people. He had always been qualified to baptize baby bear people. <laughs> All the things I said before. And people welcomed it. But once this quote unquote secret was out in a very public and embarrassing way, now it's like he's not qualified. Anymore. And so those are those things that I think that we just, those, those are those tensions that we have to grapple with as we move forward. And, you know, even some of the reasons why, you know, some persons that I've had conversation with don't necessarily appreciate organized religion because of some of these issues that we won't have conversations with. It's like everybody in the world can see the egg on our face but us. And, you know, at some point, religious institutions and churches and whatever you want to call them has to be honest with themselves and take a real look and say, why is it that you know, I'm acting like the egg is it on my face, but everybody can see it with me. What are we going to do about it? We've covered a lot of ground so far, so let's take a moment to breathe. 
In a minute, we'll look at an academic turn Dr. Benton mentioned earlier and see how that can help us better understand and respond to David's story. After that, we'll explore some next steps on how to address and prevent these kinds of situations in our own communities. We'll be right back. Hey, thank you so much for listening to That Won't Preach. I really appreciate all of the support everyone has given so far. There's a lot of work that goes into this podcast, but it's not just me that's making this experience. All of the artwork that you have seen for this podcast, whether that's on social media, the logo for the individual episodes, all of it's done by Moose Leaf Miller. They are an incredible artist with lots of experience in all kinds of mediums. So whether you're looking for professional art like you see here, or physical paintings, tattoo, character designs, even playing card alterations, and more. Again, I can't recommend them enough because not only are they an incredible person, but everything that they create is just so, so beautiful. Go to leafart.com. That's L-I-E-F-A-R-T dot com. So far, we've diagnosed some key structural issues that will help us understand David's story and to stop our leaders today from falling into similar failures. First, we discussed how our expectations of who our leaders should be often get in the way of them expressing who they actually are. If we're not careful, leaders can end up feeling like they have to be perfect and forcing their imperfections down within themselves rather than taking the chance to address them. When they continue to be suppressed, those flaws only continue to fester and grow until they finally burst. Next, it's important for us to recognize that they are stewards of a power borrowed by God and that their authority is not their own. When we fall in love with something God has promised to give us more than God himself, it always ends in disaster for everyone involved. That is especially true for leaders. Finally, it's important for us to acknowledge just how miraculously merciful God is with us with how easily corruptible and dysfunctional we can be, it's baffling he makes time for us at all. When Christians are able to actually treat each other as though that's actually true, that's when we can move past hypocrisy and into the grace of God. While that may all sound nice, this is still real life we have to deal with here. How can we actually apply any of that when we're just trying to cope with those painful experiences? How can we learn from these biblical figures when they stray so far from God, and how do we stop this destructive cycle from repeating? To answer that, we need to make a few clarifications and explore what it means to be a dark side leader. And, and like I said earlier, I think that we also have to, you know, judge fairly because there are some people that are just horrible people. Right. Um, <laughs> but those aren't the ones that we're talking about in this particular situation. Um, you know, some, some are very unethical across the board. They have a consistent pattern of just taking advantage of people and, you know, things like that. But that's not who this is. This conversation is about <laughs> this conversation is about those who really are. Their hearts are really in the right place. Their character is in the right place. They really do mean well and want well, but they have that moment of, you know, bad decision making. or They have that moment where their human side takes over or their selfish mm -hmm. side takes over. Well, we recognize mm -hmm. that I'm not perfect. I made a mistake. How do I right. recover? The, the real tension in this is how can someone make such horrible mistakes um, and still have a heart after God's own heart? Um, and you, you said something, you used a phrase um, kind of jumping back a little bit that I think is, um, you know, it, it was the main study that you were doing in your dissertation, th this idea of dark side leadership. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you said that some leaders have a tendency to um, just be awful in general and a tendency towards dark side leadership. 
and then others have these moments of um you know where where their sin nature kind of comes up and in order to hide their humanity they're using this kind of social leadership tactic can you kind of explore that a little bit more of what does it mean for leaders to show their dark side um and like how how do we really see that in in David's story? Yeah, so um, just a just a, a brief overview of what dark side leadership is. It's basically when a leader puts their selfish intentions or motivations in front of um, the organization that they serve or the people that follow them. Um, and so um, that's when um, sometimes they can um, lose touch with reality. Their um, perception of reality is exaggerated. Um, they are, they become specifically focused on what are places that they will benefit versus the group. Um, and so um, these can be you know small things, but typically they're larger things when we're talking about dark side leadership as a whole. Um, typically, these leaders tend to be charismatic. They tend to draw people in. They tend to be very powerful and effective leaders because um, in most cases. You know, if you see a dark side leader that's being effective, it's, you're looking at them like, how, how in the world, particularly historically, we look at these people like, how in the world do so many people follow them? What was the connection between these people and this person that caused them to follow someone who was clearly doing something um, that was harmful to these people? Um, but a lot of, like they say, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, but there was something in some place that these leaders connected with these followers. Um, now, the, the, typically, these are large movements. These can be um, major figures. But there's also moments where leaders can, who are not typically dark side leaders or who, who are not typically unethical leaders, can step into these moments where they make dark side decisions or they make um, they have dark side moments or they make unethical decisions um, because it will benefit them in that moment. Um, and like I said earlier, that does not necessarily mean that they can be categorized as a dark side leader overall, but in certain settings and situations, you could say that they provide a dark side leadership. And so that's where I, I will say that David got to in this point is that overall, you know, his leadership decisions benefited the, the masses um, as reported in the biblical text. However, in this moment, <laughs> he made some very selfish decisions. Yeah. So in my dissertation, I talk about how he uses impression management tactics to basically hide that because of the fact that he was looked at as a moral leader previously. Um, I think that if he had always been seen as a dark leader, he wouldn't care. Mm. You know, if he if his character or if he was known to always do things like this, I don't think that he would have tried to hide it or cover it up as he did or try to fix the situation or try to, you know, get Uriah out of um, war and have him to sleep with his wife so that he can cover this child as being someone else's or, you know, her husband's child versus his own. Um, he wouldn't have gone through all of that if not for him trying to protect his image. And so I think that that's an extra step that um, leaders who typically are, you know, have good character or good morals may start doing those types of things. But it is definitely an exaggerated moment of um, dark side leadership um, and impression management because they have to go through so much to fix or repair this image of this moment of mistake that he, or this, this series of mistakes that he made um, off of one bad decision. And so um, these are things that we have to kind of unpack and look at um, in this particular text, but also understand where it might show up in um, our own individual lives. You know, when, when we, my, most of us would not want to subscribe to say, particularly those of us who are faith-based of any kind, but particularly Christians, wouldn't want to say, oh, I'm a horrible person. I go around deceiving people and um, covering up for my mistakes. But it might be a moment where we feel like, oh, if I don't do this, then my reign is over. <laughs> you know, um, the power that's been benefited to me because people trust me, people care about me, people know what I've done. All of that could be over in a moment. Um, and so that, that's kind of how we end up in this place where we have find this intersection between dark side leadership and impression management and David's story with Bathsheba. Gotcha. So like, it, it's almost in this weird twisted way that because that moral expectation was put on him, 
you know, it led to these worse and worse moments of dark side leadership where he, he has that image to protect. And because part of his authority is in that uh, moral and ethical authority, it, it leads him to try to keep it at all costs, including completely going against it. Right. Um, do, do you think that that's one of the reasons why, um, like in our culture, it's so devastating um, when we see a moral leader kind of fall? Obviously, you know, most people that are, have a moral fallout like this aren't going around killing people, but like, is it that expectation? Does that still cause people to add up these moments of dark side leadership today? Well, I think a lot of it is this whole Disney world that we live in, um, <laughs> for lack of for lack of better comparisons and understanding. But, you know, we, we a lot of us grew up looking at these heroes. Um, you know, we grew up looking at these fictitious characters that, you know, were so triumphant and that they were so perfect. And the story always ends with happily ever after, even even with all of the things that happen. Um, there's typically in the stories that we look at growing up. Um, or that I looked at growing up of a clear um, divide between who was the hero in the story and who was the villain in the story. But what happens when the hero and the villain collides and they exist in the same person? Um, and so, you know, those are the, some of the stories we don't hear as much or we haven't heard as much growing up as children. And so when we have those expectations and at the same time, a lot of us who grew up in church are learning about, you know, these fairy tale characters is along with our Bible story characters. You know, we, we put a lot of that together to think that, oh, I have to be the heroic person. Um, you know, we look at Jesus as even being a hero. Oh, the heroic Jesus that died for our sins. Um, you know, oh, the heroic Moses that got the Israelites out of out of captivity. You know, but we, we want to stop there and not continue to read the story about how he couldn't get them into the promised land. You know, you know so. Yeah, it almost sounds like those kinds of fantasy stories of like, there's the good guy, there's the bad guy has like our culture of how we tell stories and how we tell characters has like really informed how we read the Bible in a way that it, it sounds like it wasn't supposed mm -hmm. to be read. Like we're not supposed to see a good guy and a right. bad guy. We're supposed to see God and then humans in all their messy, flawed ways. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I remember when I was pastoring, um, I did a series from the Old Testament and, you know, and I called it Scandal because that's at the time when the TV show Scandal was out. And I just talked about how it's so the, how the Old Testament is so scandalous. You know, and the people in the church, although a lot of those people have been at that church longer than I've been alive, you know, they've never heard some of those stories before. They never got those perspectives because, you know, they always wanted to have the fairy tale gospel taught, you know, that in, in most traditions. They want to go to church and look at it, you know, look at everything from this glossy lens. But, you know, I say, no, but if you flip the page <laughs> or if you keep reading to the next chapter, you find out something juicy, you know, <laughs> and they were like, oh, my. Oh, my. But I think that that series was beneficial um, to the congregation at that time because it actually allowed people to see themselves in the text in a way that they never would want people to know that they saw themselves in the text, um, to see that their own experiences aligned in the biblical text, that they didn't have to go watch Housewives to get a juicy story, that it was definitely something there um, in the Bible that they could connect with. And that these people, their stories were preserved in this text for so long for a reason. And what was their purpose in this story? And, you know, kind of going back to what we said initially, you know, I love to get, get into those stories or to those, you know, those Bible stories. And you have one line mentioned about this person. And I'll find that and say, oh, well, who is this person? What is their story? You know, the Bible only mentions them briefly. Oh, it was a man in the window. Oh, who is this? <laughs> you know, why was why was this mysterious man in the window? And why did they so... Why did they find fit to mention this person? Let's go seek about. Let's see what this is about. Um, but, you know, those are those moments where people can connect and say, wow. OK, but, you know, getting to the earlier point, just telling the full story, I think, really helps people to understand even why um, the Christ story is important. You know, why? Why is this even relative to us? You know, if we only tell, you know, these these biblical stories from the children's Bible. 
And then from the, the movies that we've seen on TV, you know, where they have these great victorious stories because everybody loves a hero, um, but not show that the hero has death to them. Then people don't think that their Christian experiences are even realistic. Um, you know, that's why when people, you know, come to salvation and then when they make a mistake six months later, they feel like they can't come back to church until they fix themselves. Mm. You know, I'm sure we've all heard at some point those stories of, oh, I'll come back to church when I get my life together. Yeah. Well, what's wrong with it? You know, your life is no more messed up than mine. You made a mistake. Come back. <laughs> you know, like continue to grow, continue to learn. Please be a part of our community, like you said earlier. But, you know, creating those spaces where people can bring those moments in. But, you know, we've we've kind of built a culture, particularly in this country, where Christians are supposed to be perfect. Pastors are supposed to be even more perfect than Christians. And, you know, it's just it's just really, um, in my opinion, unrealistic. But, you know, in those moments where we start to show like this is what Jesus is for, you know, this is what even faith is for. If, if someone's not a Christian, this is what faith is for. Is for people to form and to grow and to um, learn how to coexist in this world that we live in and how to, you know, coexist with others and themselves um, to journey with themselves, to live out this human experience that it all tends to make for a better world and for a better place. Um, But as we continue to create and stand in these conflicts with ourselves, with others, to not even acknowledge them. Um, to use avoidance tactics in our own interpersonal, interpersonal struggles. Um, It doesn't necessarily benefit us, you know, but um, like I said earlier, if we just flip the page, we can just see that there's so much more to these moments um, in in the text as well as in our own personal experiences. Mm. You know, my my heart always goes back to youth ministry because that's why I started. And that's why I believe a a large percentage of my calling is. you know, I would probably have them to sit down and write out or act out alternative ways that this story could have ended. You know, um, what are what are alternatives to David's story in this chapter? Um, what are different things that could have been done? Would they do it the same way? Would they change something, um, you know, about how he responded? Would they change his decision from the beginning? Um, would they change the outcome? You know, how would they navigate or change the story and why? You know, so those those, I think those kind of activities would allow us, even as adults, if we kind of went through those type of activities in ourselves, it would help us to prepare for when we encounter those moments in our own lives. Yeah, there's a lot of really, really good stuff that you just said. Um, And there's a couple of things that like really stood out to me as you were talking um, one of them is we want to be perfect as Christians and we come in with this expectation of being perfect. Um, my, my dad's a, pa- my dad's a pastor and, um, <laughs> oh, so you're a PK. So you really got it. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. no, I'm, I'm a PK. <laughs> I didn't mean to ever interrupt you, but I was like, wow, as a PK, that's a whole different conversation, different episode. Oh yeah. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause everyone knew that I wasn't perfect, but no, uh, <laughs> No, but like, you know, in those conversations, like he would talk with like a new believer and they were just like, man, I don't think I'm a Christian anymore. And my dad would be like, what, what, why, what happened? And they were just like, well, you know, I'd given up drinking and I'd given up this or that when I became a Christian. And, uh, you know, I, I, I did it again and I feel awful. And my dad would look at them and he was just like, that doesn't make you less of a Christian. That makes you more because you felt bad about it. You know, like he was... His whole point was just like, listen, like this kind of perfection, that's not possible. And that is extremely toxic to try to, um, to try to acquire because that's not how we were made. Right. We, the, the, the hero of the Bible is not Abraham or David or Moses. Um, it's God. And, Mm -hmm. um, even the, the biblical portrayal of God himself, um, is very complex. There's a lot of stories about God, um, that are really uncomfortable and are part of the reasons why this podcast exists in the first place. Like you get (laughs) three pages in and you know, the story of the flood just completely, uh, seems to contradict, um, everything that, that, you know, like, I thought you said it was good. Why are you messing it up already? Yeah, we just got it, here. Like, yeah, yeah. You're giving up already, you know? And then like, you know, and, and so it's just like, you know, but, but again, I, I think that that element of the Bible is making room for us to realize that 
our our perception of you know that fantasy um fairy tale kind of idea of hero versus villain is never quite true um it's always more complex than that and the bible is embracing that you know these stories of these characters that we have made heroes doing awful things that is not a problem that is a very intentional uh decision that the bible has made um to recognize people are complex and it's making room for exactly what we need in the church today this honesty this recognition of imperfection and um of of sin still existing you know it's that what what paul talks about when he talks about things being already here but not yet you know we have the holy spirit but we still sin and the question of the the moments of failure in our lives doesn't negate our faith in fact it, it if anything it proves it because it proves the need and the reality of Jesus you know came to earth specifically for that moment in your life and then there there was the other thing that like really stood out to me is as i'm thinking about the story you mentioned you know david repenting in the next chapter but the reason why he's brought to that moment is because of a prophet coming to him and acknowledging his imperfection and calling him out on his imperfection um you know strongly but in love in a way that isn't condemning in the sense of like p- punishing um but rather of one trying to help david actually see the cycle that he's become in that dark side cycle um that he's stuck in and that prophet is helping him reconnect with the heart that god gave him and i i don't know like it, it reminds me of what we said before of in our churches we need to create an environment where leaders are not any seen as any more superior than their followers rather we're all following jesus and those places of leadership need to be places of humility first more than anything else absolutely absolutely we've talked about these ideas and theology and ideas of principle, but you know, when we're connecting with people that, um, that have been hurt by the church that sees these, these issues in leadership in their church and, and wants to move forward, what can someone do with this information when they're faced with moral or religious leaders that have failed? Wow, that's a good question. So, um, you know, as I let in earlier, um, I did experience a similar um, occasion. And that's part of what uh, led me to even start looking into um, this type of situation. Um, and, I, and at that particular church, I know for a fact that there are a lot of people who were there who have not attended church since that um since that incident happened. Um, and it's not just at that church, but at several other churches where there's been um, issues. You know, and, and, and like you said, it is a moment of church hurt because people are disappointed. And people are disappointed because they put their faith and trust in a person. Um, and then they also felt like they might have felt like they were lied to um, because they did not know the whole truth of what was going on in a particular situation. And so I think the first thing to do is just acknowledge that that is real, um, that that's a real feeling, um, that it is associated with a person as maybe even an organization or a church. And to just be honest with that first and foremost, Um, but also to separate, learn how to separate that from faith. Um, I think a lot of people, when they experience that hurt, they associate the hurt with their faith, um, with their religious beliefs. And it becomes very complicated for them to process and to continue to grow spiritually because of that hurt is is associated with it. You know, that's a traumatic experience for people. 
And so when people go through something like that, it definitely would have to be a process. Um, they have to acknowledge it. They have to see where there is room for for advancement, um, you know, understand how that differs from their faith. And then they have to make a decision if they, they, if they can get to that point to pursue their faith in a new way, to recognize that humanity in themselves. I don't think it, it bothered me much at first because I was mature enough to say um, and also having been in ministry myself. I was like, well, you know, this person supported me through my mess. I'm going to support them through theirs. Let's keep it moving. Let's keep it moving. <laughs> you know, like we got choir rehearsal next week. Y'all going to be there. Let's go. <laughs> so it, for me, it really was a thing of like, oops, OK, dust it off and move forward. But, you know, I was more so critical probably at that time around the way that the uh, ministry handled um, some of the um, communication aspect of it, the way that um you know, I didn't think that the ministry was as forthright when it came to the youth ministry and, and dealing with some of those situations in children's ministry, um, because you have to when you have moments when you're dealing with kids and young people, you have to approach that very sensitively. And I don't think that in my personal opinion, those dynamics were handled well. Um, and so, you know, I was looking at it more so from a probably organizational communication perspective, even before I was even degreed in it <laughs> to, you know, just about, okay, these are issues that could have been handled differently. These are communications that should have been dealt with a little bit better mm. um, in these particular regards. But personally, I was like, I know I would, I, I recognize that I wouldn't have been who I was, or I, I wouldn't have, um, you know, made some of the strides in my personal life as well as my spiritual life had it not been for the leadership of that person. And so, um, you know, I offered them the same grace that I would have wanted. Um, and that was not appreciated by some. I, I definitely lost some friendships. And so, the, you know, that were external to church. So I think that that's a bigger picture that plays into it, um, is that even what are those external factors that influence people um, when it comes to this whole thing? You know, when you have family members that, that are like, well, how are you going to that big old church or this that, and the other? And then. You know, something like this happens. I told you he wouldn't know good. Now you have to deal with that. You know, um, then you feel let down on yourself and disappointed and you beat yourself up. So, you know, I think it's it's about acknowledging all of that and then also finding support. Um, who else is experiencing this with you? You know, who else can you relate to that may be in this moment with you that you can partner with to journey through this with? Um, one thing about uh, Christianity, like you pointed out earlier, is it's very communal. And so we aren't designed to experience our um, struggles alone. You know, a lot of times these leaders, when they have these encounters, they experience them and process them alone. But, you know, we need to find someone that we can journey with through these difficult times, regardless of what those times are. And then, um, you know, decide what we want and how we're going to get there. And, um, you know, hopefully partner with someone that can walk that journey out with us. You know, of course, we would say we would hope that they would you know, be a part of the ministry again or that they would join another church or whatever the case might be. Um, but I would more so to just say, make sure that your faith and your relationship with God stays intact in whatever way that needs to happen, um, if that's even possible. And just, you know, continue to search the text and know that nobody's nobody's perfect. Um, and I think that that's why it might have been easier for me from the beginning is because I didn't expect my pastoral leader to be perfect. You know, I recognize that they were human. And so, um, you know, because I had been in ministry for years at this point and I, I knew pastors personally and ministers personally that were not perfect. So I didn't have the expectation. But there is a lot of people who still do have the expectation mm. and we just need to acknowledge it and be real about it. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, as pastors, it's not elevate ourselves. Yeah. I, I think that was going to be my next question is just looking for those ways to. Um, when we're in a when we're in a state where we aren't in that stage of crisis where we're questioning our religious leaders or something like that, how can we in calmer times help per- create an environment where we can prevent moments like this? How can we be intentional as groups of believers to make sure that we are allowing people to acknowledge their own faults and recognize the the necessity of Christ's sacrifice. 
how do we make sure that that's open to our leaders as well? Um, that's that's a very good question. Um, my initial thought was, I don't know if it is possible, <laughs> um, but then I had to reflect on my personal experience. And, uh, you know, although I also may have felt very much at times like when I was pastoring that I had to be perfect or present a perfect image. There were times where I was like, look, if it's if it's prayer time, I'm going to be the first one at the altar. Like <laughs> you don't have to worry about me, you know, not praying if I need to pray or not getting prayed for. Um, I don't care, you know, because I recognize or I got to a point of recognizing that I had to prioritize my spiritual journey. Even as I'm leading others, I had to prioritize my own spiritual journey and my own well-being and my own mental health uh, and physical health, because if I did not, what would be left? Um, How can I serve others if I'm in pieces and I'm broken? And so I think those moments of them seeing me being transparent or seeing me you know, say, I'm not praying for y'all this Sunday, but I need somebody to pray for me. Those are moments where they recognize like, oh, wait, what's going on? You know, because that's not common or that wasn't common to them at that moment. Um, And I may not have to share with them in detail what I might have been experiencing at that moment, but it was just the fact that I'm saying, oh, he's not just teaching us, but he's actually in this process of practicing what he's teaching at the same time. Um, you know, he's exercising his faith and he's trying to figure it out with us. You know, when I would be in Bible study, I'm not telling them I'm teaching you today. I would say we're learning together. You know, we, we're in this journey together. I, it's something that I need to get out of Bible study tonight, just like you. I'm not coming just to pour, <laughs> you know. And so I think at those moments, you know, when, when you can be a little more vulnerable, people respond to that differently. Um, and uh, but like I said, of course, like many others, I still had that idea of, OK, I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't go here. I can't go there. If I'm going to a restaurant eating by myself, I can't even though it might be quicker to go just run and sit at the bar and grab food. They, they don't need to see their pastor at the bar. Somebody's going to have to say something. Somebody's going to say something or whatever. You know, <laughs> so, you know, all of those complexities were very draining. And I honestly got to a point where I said, I'm not doing it anymore. If I'm hungry and I don't want to wait an hour. I'm going to go sit at the bar and eat. (laughs) I don't care if I'm at a church conference. Um, Again, like I said earlier, that's not my character. I'm not going to sit up at the bar and get drunk and be passed out and, you know, disrespect God or the people that I represent. I'm just trying to eat. (laughs) I'm trying to have a meal. And so, um, you know, I I don't know if I answered the question, but. No, I I think you really did because, you know, that that answer was a lot more focused on like what can leaders do to make sure that they prioritize their genuine character in Christ rather than their appearance. And like, especially that last little bit, I think is so important. That distinction of you went from what are people going to think versus what actually matters, right? (laughs) You know, your character and you're comfortable enough in your character that if someone was to say, oh, no, like I saw him at the bar getting hammered, you know your character enough that that impression doesn't threaten you. And I think that that is a really important distinction. And then right. when it comes to people just in general, um, you know, I think you also answered that as well. It, it's a difficult process to be able to come to terms with people that we look up to um, not being perfect. You know, I think a lot of people had that experience with their parents where there's a moment, um, as you get older, where you go from thinking of them just as like mom and dad or or whoever. Um, and you see your, your guardians as just genuine people that were a lot of times making it up as they went while they were raising you. Um, and you know, it, there, there's mistakes in that. And sometimes those mistakes hurt and stay with people forever. And the question is, how do we approach that? What do we do with that? You know, it, it's something that is needs to be wrestled with, but something that can be wrestled with too. And I think just acknowledging that and making sure that we're aware of that is crucial. I think you summarized that very well. (laughs) If we're going to change or heal our church environments, 
This conversation can't stop here in this podcast. This conversation is one we need to continue with the Christians around us. It's only when we act in unity that we'll be able to make any kind of positive or lasting change. If you are interested in learning more about how modern social sciences apply to King David, we've got a link to Dr. Benton's work down in the episode description. It was a thorough but surprisingly approachable resource as I tried to wrap my head around these concepts, so it is absolutely worth reading for yourself. But Dr. Benton has worked on a lot of other super awesome pieces that are worth checking out too. As you were talking earlier, I thought about um, a paper I did on Eric Killmonger um, from Black Panther some years ago because I, I was offended that they called him a villain. I didn't see him as a villain when I watched the movie. And so um, I looked at, you know, is he a hero or a villain and kind of unpacking his story a little bit more. I've also, with some good colleagues of mine, done some articles on impression management, dealing with race and gender. I've also done a project recently looking at um, the experiences of educators during the desegregation era in the United States. So I interviewed some African-American educators and that's, that was a joy. Um, And that, that, chapter is actually in a book called um, Critical Race Studies Across the Disciplines. And um, I shared lessons that I learned from them from those interviews that I'm actually in the process now of building that out into a book project. Thank you so much, Dr. Benton, for coming on the show. And thank you for listening to That Won't Preach. I hope this podcast is able to help open doorways for new conversations that can help grow your faith. If you liked this episode, please rate the show in your podcast player and leave us a review to let us know your thoughts. Next month, we'll be flipping back to the very first chapters of the Bible to get a better image of why God created us in the first place. Until then, keep asking questions, and God bless.